This podcast is brought to you by our good friends at Buck Down Canada. Buck Down provides the community with high quality threads. I personally enjoy their clothing's perfect fit and grassroots bow hunting designs. Go check out their online shop at www.buckdowncanada.ca where you can find Richardson Trucker snapback hats, perfect for everyday use and even better for hunting. There you can also take advantage of the hoodie and t-shirt bundles. When purchasing at least three hoodies or three t-shirts, you instantly save at the checkout. With zero shipping costs, when it comes to hoodies and t-shirts, there is no better deal. Also be sure to check out their incredible array of designs and stay up to date on Facebook and Instagram at Buck Down Canada. This episode is sponsored by Grizz Targets and Archery. Hands down the best targets made right here in Alberta. I'm very thankful to have partnered with some amazing guys putting out high quality products. Their targets range in all sizes from the backpacker, which is their most portable target, great for checking your sights to make sure your arrow flies true when you're in the backcountry. This thinner 12 by 12 target can double as a seat or a flat surface when cooking. Say you want to have some fun testing your skills at long distances? The Kodiak, on the other side of the spectrum, boasts a massive 48 inch by 48 inch surface to assure you that you won't be digging in the grass for arrows when you're shooting past 100 yards. They have targets for both field points and broadheads, with interchangeable cells to keep you from breaking the bank when the bullseye gets blown out. You want a target that's as tough as you? Get Grizzly Tough with Grizz Targets and Archery. Be sure to check them out at grizztargetsarchery.ca. This episode is sponsored by Slayer Calls. Bill Ayer, CEO and founder of Slayer, puts immense worksmanship and quality control into every one of his calls. Not one of his products makes it into your hands without first meeting his high standards. Slayer currently makes calls for waterfowl, elk, and turkey. Their double reed duck calls boast superior craftsmanship and award-winning performance with wildly loud sound. They have a full range of elk reeds, custom bugle tubes, and in my opinion, the best push-button elk call on the market known as the Enchantress. This push-button call allows you to get a variety of noises from great cow sounds to estrus buzzes and big location bugles when paired with the swagger tube. Slayer makes many other products from goose calls and turkey reeds to lanyards, bags, and gear. They even have an online course to get you calling like a pro. Check out Slayer Calls at slayercalls.com and call the wild. This episode is sponsored by CND Archery. CND is Alberta owned and operated, offering two pro shops in Rosalind and Maleg. Owners Corey and Doug have more than 25 years of combined knowledge and experience to get you set up properly and to maintain your gear for years to come. CND Archery is Canada's only distributor of expedition bows. They carry tons of great gear that you won't find anywhere else. Corey and Doug support local by carrying many Alberta made products from arrows to accessories. Get in touch with the guys on Facebook or Instagram today at CND Archery and set up your visit. This episode of Alberta Wildlife Stories is sponsored by Precision Edge Taxidermy. Owner and operator Hunter Friesen from Stetler, Alberta puts outstanding craftsmanship into every mount to turn your most memorable stories into conversation pieces for your home. Precision Edge does everything from Euro mounts to anything big game along with waterfowl, small game and everything in between. Next time you connect with a trophy, connect with Hunter at Precision Edge Taxidermy. Find his stunning array of work on display on Instagram and Facebook at Precision Edge Taxidermy and contact him today. Welcome to Alberta Wildlife Stories. Joining me today is Doug Moisey, 
owner and operator of CND Archery. Doug has many years of outdoor experience throughout our province and just as many behind a bow. Doug started CND with Corey Lore, and since they have brought in many unique products to their shops from locally made gear to being the only Canadian distributor of expedition bows. If anyone knows how to get your bow set up and tuned in proper, it would be Doug. It's always nice to catch up with Doug, and I'm stoked to get to know you more on the podcast. Thanks for coming on, and how are you doing today? Not too bad in yourself. Oh, I'm doing good. Um, yeah, I think, you know, this this episode is kind of slotted to go out for, uh, you know, before New Year's, but uh, it's not even quite Christmas yet here, so yeah. yeah. Getting right into all the holiday stuff, but you guys pretty well ready for the holidays? We're getting there. Uh, we're just waiting for the kids to come home. Uh, trees are set up. The lights are all on. And mom and I are just sitting by the pellet stove and she's watching Netflix and I'm talking to you tonight. So Merry Christmas. <laughs> Thank you. Merry Christmas to you guys. Um, so yeah, you guys are down in uh, Malag, Alberta there, hey? Yeah. It's, um, it, we, my wife and I moved here because she had a teaching job here and with my job, I could be anywhere. So this is where we're located. It's a nice little community. And for me, it's, it's central to my work from a East West perspective. We're just a little bit more on the Northern end of my territory, but I cover a lot of Eastern Alberta with my work. So it's, you know, it's kind of nice where it's at. It's some decent fishing and some decent hunting up in this country and it's, you know, it, it's it is what it is, right? It's I uh, I personally I just I work so I can live. So this provides yeah. a work so I can go chase elk or whitetail or muley or moose or whatever. So it's kind of fun. And the upside of it is is that with Corey and I opening up our archery shop, it was something that I've been tuning bows for a lot for guys for a lot of years, uh, especially the last eight or nine in this area here, just because guys really had not too many spots to go to and so I started doing it out of my garage and Corey and I got to know each other through our work and the next thing you know we're opening up archery shop so here we are <laughs> CD archery and, but you know what it, it's fun uh, for the people that have been starting to come here the uh, we're trying to help them with a lot of knowledge we're from our store point that uh, we follow the philosophy we're there for um to help and it's all about customer service but at the end of the day is that we carry a lot of stuff in our shop that Corey and I both use and that is sort of our model if we don't use it we probably won't carry it and we will bring it in for you but we will promote stuff locally and Canadian and we're trying to do everything as much as we can in a western Canadian form as far as supporting businesses and you know that's why we've got Grizz Archery Targets and today I was doing some digging around and I found uh, there's a company here in Alberta that actually does wraps. And I noticed, like you sent me a picture today where you were building your arrows with the C&D archery wraps. Well, we've been getting them out of the U.S., but now that we've found an Alberta person that can do this, we're going to be supporting them as well. So the whole nice. idea is, is just to support locally. So, yeah, it was kind of nice that way. Yeah, that's super nice. And that's super nice that you guys do that and try to kind of you know, put locals and family businesses and small businesses yeah. first. And then from there, kind of go from there. But, yeah. and I know there's a couple of other guys I've seen kind of making uh, custom wraps and stuff too. And it's funny enough you say that because it's not a common thing you, you actually come by. So 
That's interesting. You found someone in Alberta yeah. doing that too. Yeah, no, it's actually, um, they're called wild obsession. Um, I just discovered today through an archery shop that was advertising on Facebook, sort of like how I found those, um, game hangers or for hanging heads you put on your page there. And so I texted them and then next thing you know, I ordered some and they shipped them, shipped some to me here the other day. So I got a few skulls. I'm going to be hanging up here this Christmas. Nice. So, yeah. Those grand pursuit ones. Hey, eh? yeah. The grand yeah. pursuits. Yeah. Yeah. Nice yeah I was a pretty big fan thing. of it. Yeah. Sorry. What I like about them is that they're a Western Canadian company. They're an Alberta company. So I thought, perfect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what I thought too. You know, same kind of idea with the podcast is trying to keep it Albertan, right? Um, yeah. Let alone Canadian. Uh, but uh, it was that and then just the functionality. You know, that's yeah. there's a lot of different things out there to hang euros, especially I find a little difficult. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's just really simple, really straightforward. And I was like, oh, that's, yeah, same kind of thing like you mentioned with, um, you know, like if you wouldn't have it in your shop kind of thing. Uh, or sorry, if you yeah. wouldn't use it or have it on your bow, like you might not really carry it in the shop or, you know, be all that much putting it out there, pushing for it. But that's the same way I kind of feel with, um, uh, you know, advertising and putting things out there in the podcast and stuff like that too, is I want it to be things that, um, people genuinely are really, you know, put a lot of love and care behind into what they're making and what they're doing. And they have, they've got the passion behind it and it's locally and things like that as well. So, but. Well, no, I mean, it's it's good because everybody's, everybody's doing some of it like starts as hobbies and then the next thing you know, they're building for the people and then it becomes a little bit of a mini business, but they are putting a passion to it. And I think mm-hmm. that's so critical because it's these little small towns slash small businesses that as much as we hate to admit it, they do keep the economy going. Um, for me, big box stores, like, like I, I'll admit, like Cabela's, you want selection, you got lots of selection, but... I I just don't think you see the service there. I don't think mm-hmm. you see the passion in my mind and nothing against Cabela's. It just I to me they're a big box store. And I no, don't be wrong, Aaron. When Cabela's was only in the US, I made the trip down to Sydney, Nebraska to go to their store. And at that time it was pretty cool to see. Like it was something out of this world that I had never seen. <laughs> I thought, oh pretty cool. And and I, I'm not a how can I say this? I, I'm an economist, but by in my thinking, in the sense is that at the time when Cabela's was only in Sydney, Nebraska, and they were a mail order and they had the big store. When I I've got shirts from Cabela's that are 40 years old and they had made in the USA or made in Canada, and none is made in Indonesia, <laughs> China, anywhere else. And I thought, hmm, you know, and that's. It's sort of progressed to, and so when we see these little small businesses that, you know, they're making skull hangers or they're doing this or the wraps here in Alberta, it's a made in Alberta, made in Canada. And to me, I think that's great. Yeah, yeah, you're directly basically funneling the money back into the people's pockets here and everything too. Yeah, um, yeah, and and I think it's tough when you mention, you know with Cabela's and Bass Pro, like you say, the first time you ever go into one of those, especially if you're going into like one that's got, you know, the big fish tanks and stuff like that too, you're usually like, yeah, like you say, pretty (laughs) blown away by it and everything. But um, I think anytime you get into like a bigger box store idea like that, you're, it comes with its exchanges, right? Like you start to lose that, that kind of personal communication. I even find that. Yeah. 
like I even find that with talking to different people, um, like even through the podcast thing, like I talk to a lot of listeners and stuff that message back and forth and things too. And um, I always kind of fear that, you know, like there's some people even on social media, you know, that it's like someone they pay that runs that account. You know what I mean? Like that's not even like you lose that personal touch of even just like communicating with people yeah. uh, in general. Right. So, yeah, yeah it's well, a tough thing, know- but. It is a tough thing. And, and, you know, like we talk about podcasts, like podcasts are kind of a function of pre-COVID or they were starting and then COVID podcasts really took off. And I like yeah. podcasts. It's great informative information. But to me, it's still sitting around a kitchen table with two, three guys that have a lot of knowledge or four guys having mm-hmm. a cup of coffee and just talking, exchanging ideas. Like when I was younger, my dad, like my dad made custom hunting knives started way back in the 50s i picked it up somewhat i still do the odd night but dad that was his hobby but you guys have guys come over that were of the like mind that were knife makers and they'd sit around and have coffee and they would you know talk about different ways of grinding and all that and i'm you know and so that was the prevent to the podcast and my minder was the precursor to the podcast proper word um, yeah was that kitchen table coffee shop talk? Cause that's where you learn things and pick things up. Like, mm-hmm. um, you know, when I was really seriously into wildcatting, uh, wildcatting, not in the oilman's term, but with rifles, like, um, there was a gunsmith that really liked to take casings and change the shoulder angles, all that. Him and I yeah. used to sit for hours and talk and I'd learned so much about reloading and precision shooting from him. And then, you know, you talk to other guys that like mine at the range when they were silhouette shooting up to five and six hundred yards. You start playing that, and then there would be a just you know you'd sit around with a pop or a coffee or water at the end of the day, and there's a lot of exchange of ideas. And this is why I like the podcast today. You know, there's a good opportunity to pick up some real good info by knowledgeable people. You know? Yeah, well, I couldn't agree more. And I hear a lot of people call it. Um... I don't know, like long form conversation or something like that. You know, it's just yeah. another, and cause there are like, I think podcasts that get um, quite heavily edited down into like, oh. we're, so it's just the meat and potatoes. I like to yeah. leave things pretty open just because exactly like you're saying. Um, and like you said, like pre COVID and kind of going into it, there, you, people kind of lost that just getting together, sitting down and communicating. Yeah. And, you know, like even in the whole kind of concept, of like the Alberta wildlife stories podcast is that it's not necessarily um, like a tactic style podcast. Like it's not like this is how you hang your tree stand. This is how you tune your arrows. This is how you paper tune. Like it's not very much specific that way. It's more like when people share their stories and their life experience interwoven and someone telling that story is all the details you really need. If you listen closely to like how someone succeeded in a hunt. Right. Um, Yeah. So I find it, like you say, like really valuable that way, the same way that a bunch of guys sitting around having coffee or something like that, talking about the way they're sharpening knives could be so much more educational than you think. Like some people might just think they're sitting yeah. around shooting the shit, right? But it's really informational. So, Yeah. No, I mean, that's like, and the thing is, the problem with the, and I don't know how to say this, Aaron, but I think we're getting so wrapped up in technology in our world that the yeah. art of conversation, the art of sitting around a table is lost mm-hmm. in my mind. It is being lost. Um, you know, just to even sit down, 
because number one, I guess it's because of the hectic lifestyle we're now in. We're actually, mm-hmm. our lifestyles are very much like what our cell phones are doing. Like it's that bang, 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 go, 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 go. And yeah. there, there used to be a time of slowdown. Like, you know, we're, we're, we're here in the Christmas season. And I, as a kid, I remember the last week before Christmas, things would really slow down. And you could see like my parents, like, yeah, they were busy doing things, but there was that time at night when just things shut down. You know, TV was off the air by like midnight. Um, radio stations were usually shutting off at noon. Now, that tells you how old I'm getting or how old I am. But, um, you know, like, I remember when CJCA in Edmonton, which was, uh, they had a show. They actually would go, at time of 17 or 18, they were finally going 24 hours. So there'd be the comedy. I used to work night shift as a 17-year-old. And there'd be... Wow. Um, uh, the comedy hour from four till five in the morning. <laughs> so it was fun to live. Right? But what it was is there was a time of slowdown and there was like, traditionally it was always like, okay, we're shutting down. Um, you know, typically Christmas night would be, there might be a movie theater, the odd movie theater open, but everything was shut down tighter to drum about three o'clock on, on Christmas mm-hmm. Eve and nothing opened up until boxing day. And Boxing Day was special. There was none of this advertising, like the Black Friday sale and Boxing Day events were already starting. You didn't know what was happening until Boxing Day morning because then the newspaper would come and you'd see all the sales. And, of course, then you'd rush, right? But mm-hmm. but there was a time when just it got quiet. Like the whole world seemed to shut down. And now the world isn't shutting down anymore. So, you know, the quiet times, like just for you and I to sit here on a Friday night via the Internet and talk is, is nice. I think it's excellent. Yeah. But when I was younger, it would have been me and you and maybe Corey and maybe somebody else. And we'd be sitting at a kitchen table and we might have a whirly pop. We might not. But we'd be <laughs> sitting up bullshit about hunting and everything else that goes on. And oh, by the way, can I say bullshit on the podcast? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but no, that's, but, but, you know, like when I go back and think about some of the things, like there was a couple of hunting buddies that I had when I was 19 years old. We're all, you know, hunting season would be just over like November 30th. It's over. And we're already talking about, okay, what rifle are we going to have for next year? Where are we going to go hunting, you know, next fall? Like, you want to go coyote hunting? Like, we would be already on to the next. But we this would be all being planned on a Friday night sitting at the table, you know, or a Saturday yeah. or sitting in, on a couch watching Saturday Night Live. You know, kind of yeah. Thing. Yeah, it's so cool, man. And, you know, like, for me, you know, like, I'm only 30. So... You know, I caught the last is kind of the 90s growing up, and I feel like in my youth, or even like I don't know, in childhood, really, I kind of caught the like what I feel like would be the last wind of what you're talking about was slowing down. Um, I just remember, you know, as a kid, like you said, regardless, even not even just around Christmas time, but like you're saying, like you know, Sundays, like you know, either nothing was open Sundays or everything was closed by the afternoon. Right. Like, or it wasn't even open till like maybe noon. Cause everyone's either in church or having a breakfast or taking it easy. Yeah. And you know, that was the rest day. Right. Um, yeah. and then, you know, you'd go down the street. I don't know why I just have this such a vivid memory of, you know, going out for breakfast with, you know, my grandma and grandpa and stuff. And, you know, it's like two ninety nine bacon and eggs. And it's yeah. just like how kind of simple and, kind of relaxed the world was at that time and then you know it flash forward to where we're at now and you know i even had my wife 
recently she showed me this video and it's really it 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 really kind of stuck with me where you know we sit down at the dinner table and some people will like put their phone on the dinner table and even then it's like it it has that i don't know psychological ping that like that's important to us right like the phone's at the dinner table it's right next to our plate even if you flip it upside down it's like almost telling the rest of the dinner table like this is important that's here with me you know um and how kind of more and more difficult it is for people to just kind of unplug put it aside and sit down and have dinner with their family let alone like you're saying slow down around christmas or slow down on the weekend but man like even just in the evenings with family and stuff and it's something that we're trying to be more and more just aware of um because a lot of times it gets you to the point that you're just not even aware of it you know like you're just in the hustle and bustle of life running around for work running for this and that you get so strung out and caught up in it and then all of a sudden you sit down and you unwind a bit and you're like this is mania you know like it's crazy yeah but well, is yeah. it mania because, so like, you know, and, and we're going down a different tangent here, but like I asked my mom and dad here, this would be probably, well, it's probably about 15 years ago. I asked my mom and dad, I said, right now versus the 60s, what was harder to live in? And they said to me that the 60s were the tougher times because there was no money. Um, like for me growing up, we didn't have our first television in our house until 1968, and it was an old black and white. Uh, it was a 20-inch TV. It weighed like 300 pounds. It was full of tubes, and yeah. but there was no money. But we didn't know any better. We had the radio at night. Like mm-hmm. um, I know, growing up as a kid, we used to go to my grandparents' house out in Williamson, and they'd have a wood stove going in the basement. Because that was part of the, it was a cooking stove. My grandmother used to bake bread out in the wintertime. Nice. And we'd sit upstairs, and there'd be the CFCW radio station on. Um, yeah. And they'd be talking about the stories, and they'd be talking about the old times, and they'd be talking about what's going on. And, you know, if you can imagine a, I would say by gracious estimates, a 900 square foot house on one floor, and having 25 people in there on a Friday night. Yeah, <laughs> and everybody just going around like it just. But what happened was is that things were shut down. Like the stores were open late on Thursday nights. Uh, it expanded to Friday nights. The stores were closed on Sundays. The only thing that were open on Sundays was usually gas stations or the drugstore. Those are the only yeah. two stores, you know. And so, in the summertime, it used to be a lot of every second Sunday uh, because. A lot of my dad's brothers and sisters were living in the Edmonton area. My grandparents used to come in from Columbia, and we'd go to um, uh, Harlock Park, which nice. is, and we'd have a picnic, and that would be the Sunday afternoon get together, and everybody bring baskets, and we'd have a picnic, and it was a family gathering, and it'd be like my dad's brothers and sisters, cousins, and everybody'd show up, and this was every second or third Sunday all summer long. And in the wintertime, it would then go to my grandfather's house, where my grandfather, um, once a month in the wintertime, would bring in this band that were called Radomskis. Uh, they played, it was Ukrainian music, but there was a cymbal and a, and a violin, and the guy had a little drum set. And um, Anyways, long story short, they used to clear out the whole living room of my grandparents' house. And that's where people would dance, and they put chairs along the outside. <laughs> and it was a gathering. 
us kids would go to bed downstairs by the wood stove and wake up in the morning and there'd be adults strewn out on couches. And <laughs> you knew you knew what was going on and it was just everybody had a good time. You didn't have money, but you didn't care because you didn't know. And, yeah. you know, so for me, and I'm being very, um, what the hell is the word I'm looking for? But anyways, I'm looking back and I'm going, part of it was because we didn't have to have the fancy new car. We didn't have to have everything. And we saved for it. Like I used to bug my dad, we'll just write a check because every time I saw him buy something, he was write a check. And mm-hmm. I said, geez, I should get this new gun. And I go, dad, write a check. He says, no, I got to save for it. And he'd save for like six months to buy a new gun. And yeah. that was the way we did things. Nowadays, if we want it, we've gotten to be such a society now. Like pull out the credit card and away you go. And I think what happens is we've become slaves to our credit cards in some respects. Not everybody, but some of us are. So, but that yeah. want for more. Anyways, I, I well, went down a very thousand road. <laughs> no, but that's okay. That's honestly, this is the direction that I was like kind of anticipating the beginning of this conversation going. Um, yeah. Because, you know, it shines a light into kind of what the time was like you know when even when you guys were getting rifles and when you when you were kind of starting to hunt and stuff um but you know it's it's funny because when you touch on that uh within hunting i find there is that uh delayed gratification and i think that's what we're missing a lot of in society nowadays is exactly like you said like if you want it you can have it right now and if your kid wants it right now, you could probably get it for him right now. So it's like, you know, all of a sudden we turn into these adults that are like kindergarten kids that just are running around like, I want this right now and I need to make enough money for it right now. And then you get that instant gratification and then you just move on to the next thing. Like, what do you want right now? What do you yeah. want right now? Right. Um, whereas in certain interests and hobby, you know, and it's funny that we talk about you know hunting, moving into more of like a hobby and interest phase when it was probably a way to actually be you know, when you said there wasn't a lot of money and things like actually hunting and getting meat and wild game at that time was highly beneficial. And I mean, it still is, but, um, you know, now when you look at like, especially into archery and bow hunting and stuff, it's like, there is no instant gratification. Like if you want to have the success in hunting, like you can't just go running through the bush, expecting it, making all the noise in the world yelling i want to do this right now you know what i mean like it takes so much time and effort to both learn how to a like hunt b learn how to shoot a bow and then c you know like learn how to be accurate with it and combine the two in a way that you're actually going to have some form of success right and then when you do get that gratification or when things align and the story unfolds and something happens it's like that memory lasts a lifetime. It's not like there's a ton of purchases. I probably don't even remember buying in my life. You know what I mean? There's tons of things that I probably wanted really wanted right now. And I don't even remember wanting them as bad as I did, you know, but then you think about some of those hunting stories and it's like, you get like emotionally brought back into it in nostalgia or something like that too. And it's just like, it replays in your head, like a movie, right? Like it just sticks with you. But all that being said, like, Sorry? Well, no, in your right, there, there is a lot of nostalgia. And, and going back, like you said, it was a way of life a lot. So my grandfather was a hunter, um, him and yeah. another guy, and money was tight. My grandfather farmed up to a certain point, but then he had to go in the wintertime and work off-farm to make money. 
to because mm-hmm. there were six kids in the family, right? Um, like my grandfather's land that uh, he had that he got when he immigrated from the Ukraine, he bought it uh, for I think it was six or seven dollars for a quarter section, but he had to clear so many acres of trees every year, and um, when he finally got most of it cleared, then he was then considered to be the total owner of it, but then. He found that he didn't have enough money, so he would go and work in the sawmill or he'd go there. But one of the things where I was going with this is that every November, they get a moose tag, him and his neighbor, and they used to go to Knighton Junction, which is west of Edmonton. With yeah, I know exactly where that is. Okay, so you know where that is. Now, can you think about yeah. that? Knighton Junction, there was a train station there, uh, which ironically was run by my grandfather's nephew or something anyways it turns out my dad's cousin or whatever long story short but they used to go in there and they'd go with their ford half ton truck it was a 43 or 44 ford half ton when they'd get there because there was no antifreeze per se they would number one they said for the radiator put hot water in there what they would do is that they would drain the water out of the motor and the radiator there was plugs frost plugs and then they'd go in by horse and sleigh south of Knighton Junction to go moose hunting where they'd spend their wow. uh, 10 days in a canvas tent with a wood stove. Uh, my grandfather had uh, two buffalo blankets that he slept in and they'd get it like my, remember my grand, my dad telling me and my grandmother telling me is that they used to bring home a moose frozen and <laughs> back to Willingdon and the moose would be gutted but it would not be skinned and they'd have to hang it in the house for a day or two to thaw out enough so they could skin it. Wow. <laughs> but that's what put food on the table, right? Yeah. And that that was a yearly thing for them. Um, and mm-hmm. it was just to make sure that there was meat. Because, yeah, they had pigs and everything, but you had to sell pigs to make money to buy flour. Like, there was a lot of things that my grandfather used to do. Like, they used to go to the Wild Rose um, flour mill and used to take weed out of the bin get flour made up in the fall time you know three or four pound bags of flour and so but that's where the hunting started and that's where you know you know as he got older in life and there was money in there and everything else they didn't they didn't do that as much but he used to go hunting a lot and um he he was quite the character my grandfather he um he uh was at an age he was 70 what the hell was he, 73 or 74 years old, and he went hunting with my dad. I wasn't allowed to go because I had to go to school, I, and I couldn't go on this trip. But there was my dad, a couple of his cousins, there was a nephew and then a friend, and my grandfather went. And because my grandfather was 74 or 72 at the time, no, 72 at the time, the, one of the cousins said to him, um, you know, you're the old guy, why don't you finish setting up camp? We'll go hunt this afternoon, you finish up. You know, because, you know, Bill, you're the camp cook kind of thing, you know. And Dad says, you know yeah. what, you don't have to, Bill. You know, Dad, come with me. Dad, my grandfather said, no, no, you guys go ahead. He says, maybe I'll take the gun and go find a partridge or two. So he finishes <laughs> setting up the camp, the kitchen going. He's got an old Marlin uh, 3855 takedown. He says, you know what, I'm going to go see. Maybe I'll find something to get for supper, you know. And he goes over the hill, and here's uh, two bull moose standing there. And so he shot wow. both of them. <laughs> and like good shot, like 150 yards shot, one behind, in the neck, the other one behind the ears, it was running away. 
and he skins, starts skinning a little bit, and my dad comes back to camp because he heard the shots. He says, what time? He says, come on with me. And here, he, my grandfather got in these two moose. Well, they're, they're only two moose of the trip. Anyways, the cousins Whoa. were just mad in hell at him because you got our moose, you know. So my grandfather, well, <laughs> hey, you don't have to be fast. You just got to be slow and steady going hunting. So it was, there's all kinds of little things. Like I used to hear about all these little stories that would happen when he used to go. He's a lucky hunter too. So he was a good hunter. That's so funny. What I really like about that as you're talking about it, I don't mean to cut you off, but in like nowadays and you must see it too. There's always these guys and it's not trying to throw shots at it or whatever. Cause you do have to be like, you know, quite, physically fit and adept for you know hunting elk in the backcountry or hunting moose or anything like that right um but it's just funny because at that time when your grandfather would have been doing it you know purely for the sustenance and stuff too and i'm sure there's a lot of enjoyment and everything still but it's like i'm sure he wasn't thinking about like oh i should be in the gym bench pressing (laughs) you know (laughs) to get prepped for this moose hunt you know that's just what they did right um, well, yeah. and I think it bred tough men at that time, you know, but, well, you know, it did. And, and, and my grandfather was tough. Now I've got it somewhere in my garage. No, sorry. I, my buddy's got a man cave. Like he's got this big barn where he's got old memorabilia from hunting. So he's got my dad's old pack and the pack had a hardwood frame, um, hardwood frame pack with canvas. And they used to all, with straps, like these canvas straps would just, for me, they would cut into me. And that's, that's a week of a man I was against my dad and my grandfather. But they used <laughs> to pack out hind quarters of, of moose and elk with those things. And, like, you know, when you talk, there was no quads. Um, nobody thought about deboning everything. Um, yeah. What happened is my uncle... Uh, my uncle worked at Canadian Linen and was the manager there. And so they used to get these hotel white sheets that were, you know, get to a point where the hotels didn't want them. So we were always worried about keeping game clean. So what happened is, is my uncle gave a whole bunch of these sheets that they were going to throw away to my grandfather. And my grandmother sewed game back out of these 100% cotton sheets. And so that would get wrapped and be pure white, wrapped behind quarter elk. And then you'd strap it to this <laughs> hardwood backpack and you start packing and I learned how it was when I shot my first moose at 14 is that I was packing like I was not a I was a big kid I was six foot two at 14 wow. but you talk about not having man strength like I tried to pack out this this front shoulders like we're talking you split the moose in half last rib cut it off and then you're taking the front shoulder with the rib cage on and it was just a young uh-huh. bull and here my dad throws it on his back like it's okay, let's just get it done. And he packs it out a mile. I tried packing it out for a half a mile, and I just about died at 14. I'm just going, okay, I better be scared of this boy. <laughs> so, <laughs> but, it, but and, you know, it, it, um, in my mind, yeah, with substance, they were tougher, but there was no other way of getting the meat out because that was the primary concern. In fact, you know, like dad at the time, back in the early 60s, shot an elk that would be 350 plus bull elk for horn size. But wow. he never even saw the horns when he shot it. He was looking at, here's a whole bunch of elk meat for the winter. And so he had right. that elk rack hanging in his garage for 
This would be 68 or 69, so it was about eight years he had it in the garage. Because he shot it in 60, he was shot at the year I was born, 61. And it was 350 plus. Some guy measured it up and it was some between 350 and 400. And a guy from the U.S. came up from Caterpillar, because uh, dad was working for Caterpillar at the time. And he came up and he came over to our house for a beer in the summertime, saw the Elkhorns in dad's gra- in our garage, and he offered my dad uh, $200 U.S. for it. This is in 68. That, wow. that was two more payments on the house. So Holy shit. Yeah. So there's somewhere in Illinois, but, you know, for him, it was a big old rack. But he says, you know, I was always going to leave the rack there because I just wanted to get the meat out. So. Wow. But it's, yeah. Those, and then got two mortgage payments out of it. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, you got to think about it. So in 61, they had a 25-year mortgage, and the, the mortgage payment was $113 a month. Wow. So at the time, Dad was bringing home 180 So, you know, you had the rest of that money to buy food and pay electricity and everything else and make a car payment. Yeah. So, so. but anyways, we, we digressed a little bit there, but... It goes back to how I became what I am. Is that, and I and I thank my dad for this, and I thank my grandfather. My dad spent a lot of time with me. Um, if I wasn't playing hockey in the winter time, we were doing something related to hunting and or fishing and or knife making. But mm-hmm. you know, like Saturday mornings when if I didn't have a game, Saturday mornings would be me and him and one of the neighbors. We'd go for coffee and breakfast to this little local restaurant. Then we'd head off to the gun shop where we'd sit down where we knew the gun owners. And we used to go and sit there for half the day there, touching, playing with the guns, talking shop with all the people. And they actually had a little coffee corner in the gun shop where people could just sit there and have coffee and BS all day. And that, wow. was, that was a ritual for us. And that's where we you learn things and picked up new tricks. And it was, but that was the way of life. And, we got home in time to basically watch Hockey Night in Canada for Saturday night, right? You know, so, <laughs> but Man. is uh, you know, and and but that's where the foundation was built. Was this dad felt it was important that spend time with the kids. If you want mm-hmm. them to love the outdoors, you got to take them to the outdoors. And so, you know, dad showed me a lot of things. My grandfather showed me a lot of things, and a lot of things I learned myself. But it was. Uh, over time, you just you get information, you meet the right people, and you learn which people to stay away from and which people to hang out with, and you get to know. And it just mm. it's a it's a it's a change. Like so, if you want to see where I started, Aaron, is that back in the early '60s or mid '60s, like the very first time I ever got exposed to an elk, um, my dad actually had shot that big bull elk. Uh, I shot a big bull elk, had gutted it, had left it whole. They had drug it onto a trailer somehow. They shot it down out by Edson. They got it home to skin it in September. It's being backed up the driveway, and I didn't know what the hell was coming up the driveway. I ran to the neighbor's house and hid in the basement. And then my dad come and got me and says, no, this is an elk. You need to learn this. And I was, what, maybe four at the time, and I was scared shitless. But uh, it was uh, <laughs> my first exposure to an elk. And, you know, and then that's where, then after that, then all of a sudden, Dad showed me how he, 
he whistled it in. Like he actually built his own elk whistles. Um, first wow. time he ever called in an elk with a shell, a, case, a shell casing, because he had heard that no he was a way. forest warden back. In, yeah. Well, he was a forest warden back in the 50s, late 50s at that time. They weren't quite game wardens, but they were. They would help out and they, but they were a forest warden. And dad was stationed at Edson. And that, she says that was the first time you ever heard an elk bugle. And he wow. could hear this, you know, bugle and it was shrill. So he learned that. And then he realized that, you know what, what happens if I take a piece of copper tube? And then he built an elk whistle out of a copper tube. And he called in well, between 62 and I believe the last one he called in with that pipe was 81 or 82. So over 20 years, he called in like 16 or 17 elk and shot him <laughs> with that whistle. That's, that's yeah. incredible. Yeah, it just unreal. And that's like the first time I ever heard a bull elk bugle. I was nine years old. Well, that's when I fell in love with elk hunting. And yeah. you got to remember too, is that back in those times, a lot of the land, everything was landlocked per se in the sense is that there was elk populations, but there was more moose than anything else, especially in that Edson area, because everything was landlocked in the sense is that there was no cut lines. And then with oil exploration, you started getting cut lines. And then guys started to open up some land to farm. And then you start to see the elk really start to go. And that's when you start to see more and more of them. And, you know, it was, you know, like dad had a little super special spot. And I still like that spot, and I won't reveal the spot, but the unfortunate part is because somebody bought land around all that and somehow was able to get the road closed, I can't get, ever get back in that spot because they got no trespassing ah. and the gates locked and to go back into this crown land. But um, Dad got an elk out of there every year for, I think it was 12 years straight. He always got an elk out of there. We'd get That's up incredible. at 3 o'clock in the morning and drive there and just... Oof, it was fun. A lot of fun. Man. So. so going from all that kind of growing up and experiencing it and yeah, being shown the outdoors, at what point did, you know, like you say, at the gun shop, sitting around having coffee, talking about all that stuff, making, you know, copper elk whistles and stuff. Like, At what <laughs> point did uh, – archery kind of come into play like was your was your dad into it as well too or was it something that you kind of went into later on or well okay so what happened was is that because of the game management laws they opened up an archery season back in the early 70s that you could go in from september 1st to september 23rd in certain zones and you could archery hunt and there was a guy mm-hmm. named blair kreitz and he had a little archery shop out in, um, in the west end of Edmonton there. And I went and saw him, and he had shot this massive 350 bull elk plus on September the 5th after opening day. And wow. at that time, archery was kind of, eh, you know, we didn't know. And then at the one gun shop there, they started picking up the archery line. Well, I, one of the guys there was heavy into archery, so he brought in PSEs. And I was 16, so I worked hard all summer, saved all my money. Um, I saved $200 over the summer working all jobs because the PSE bow with arrows, um, finger tab, blah, 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 rest and all that was 180 bucks. So wow. 
Still what they and, go for. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. it was really wild is, is that we're talking, you're pulling 65 to 70 pounds, and most of the time there were 70-pound boats. And that's like and a recurve? Like no... No, no, this is a compound round wheel PSE. Okay. This is not okay, recurve. yes. I shot recurve as a kid. My uncle shot recurve all the time. Um, my uncle showed me how to shoot a recurve, so I shot recurve as a kid. But when I really wanted to get serious, I went and I bought a compound bow. Okay, cool. Broadhead. I didn't, yeah. Just, sorry? Just when you mentioned like the finger tab and the shelf and, or, like, and stuff, I was like, I thought I just pictured a recurve immediately. But Yeah. Nope. The old the old um, PSEs, some of the original ones that came out, were round wheels. They pulled like trying to pull a dead pig up the hill. <laughs> no let off. Like if you had fifty percent let off, you were happy. Um, and they shot an arrow at about one hundred and sixty feet a second. It was just, and you shot these aluminum arrows, and your target butt would absorb it, but then all of a sudden you start noticing an arrow start flying funny. Here your aluminum arrow would be bent, so you had to go buy an arrow straightener. So at the time, there was these aluminum arrow straighteners where you could push on them to straighten them. And so it finally got to a point is that you get three or four good arrows with good broadheads and away you went. And it was huh. tough. It was a learning curve. And that's when you learned like you had to have patience. Um, me being... I'll say is that even my wife will confirm this. I'm probably half to three quarters ADD. Um, in today's world, I would, if I was going to school today as a kid, I'd probably be on Ritalin because I can't sit still for most days um, <laughs> and focus for any length of time. But um, archery taught me how to focus in a lot of respects because you had to. You had to draw back perfectly. You had to learn how to anchor. You had to watch air flight. But when it came down to stalking, you had to pay attention to details and you had to do different things. And it, it actually, it brought me along in a way that allowed my mind to get quiet. My mind is very loud at times and archery is the one sport where my mind goes to, not goes to sleep, but it gets calm. Right. Mm. And so when I started picking that up as a teenager, it helped me guide me, but it helped me make me be a better hunter because there were many times I'd be like a hundred yards from a, like a 150 whitetail buck. And you're just going, Oh, if I was only a little bit closer. And then rather than being patient, nope, you forced the issue like you would with a rifle hunt. And mm-hmm. so you did that. And then that's how I got going in it. And then I dropped it off for a few years cause I got heavy into wildcatting. Um, I got really into silhouette shooting and bench rest shooting. And then like, this is back in the early eighties, like, Long range shooting was the real thing. Like there used to be silhouette ranges in Southern Alberta when I moved down there. And, you know, we used to shoot steel plates at five, six, 700 yards. And it was a lot of fun. And I got into that so heavy that I kind of put the archery equipment away. And then it was actually kind of epiphany, Aaron, is that um, in Southern Alberta, like there's fields where there's a section of land. And I, sitting there and I saw this about a 150 whitetail buck and he was bedded about three, like, you know, probably six, 700 yards into this field. Nobody could get near him. Well, I long range shot. So I got along a fence line, set up everything, took him, shot him in his bed. And I went, you know what? There's no thrill in this anymore. It just, to me, doesn't do nothing. Yeah. I put meat on the table and yeah, it's a nice rack, but I just said to myself, like, this isn't hunting. 
this is not for me what I think is hunting. Like it's just, it, it, you know, I have a lot of respect for the animals. I revere them. Um, when I harvest an animal, I praise the animal for giving up his life for me. I thank the Lord for, for helping yeah. in that animal. And when I basically took that one in his bed, I just said, you know what? It just, it's time to get back closer to nature. And, you know, I, I've got the adage I've told a few of my friends is that when I want to hunt, I take my bow. When I want to go grocery shopping, I take my rifle. And that's what the rifle sort of become like, if I really need to put something in the freezer, this is what I'm going to have to do if we start getting desperate because we do live off of wild meat in our house. But yeah. for me, it. but I don't judge the success of any hunt based on whether I get an animal or not. Because as we were talking prior to starting up this thing tonight, is that every hunt has its own meaning and has its own different thing and brings its own different experience that brings a new sense of satisfaction. And I, I like Fred Bear's model, and I live by that one. If you judge your success of a hunt by how many animals or by an animal that you harvested, you'd miss the point. I'm adding, mm-hmm. I don't know I don't what the exact saying was, but basically saying it's out there enjoying the experience of what you see. Like, um, I think I told you this before, Aaron, when, we were, when I was going to Saskatoon that night, we were talking on the phone, but yeah. He was waking, or not, is getting up early on this mountainside in southern Alberta and getting up on and watching the sun come up over the prairies where I could see all the way to Fort McLeod. And it was listening to the elk bugle as the sun was coming up. And because I had got up at three o'clock in the morning, climbed to the side of this mountain till first light, and I got up on this high ridge just to watch the world come alive. And like that was just, that was to me a great day. Never saw an elk heard them but never saw them but it was just a great day to be out there right so yeah yeah it's definitely something that like they're words to live by 100 percent. that you know the fred bear quote that way or just to take that in or like a field with you and i remember when you and i were talking about that and when you told me the that the first time um i find it's like especially when i went back and i remember i was talking to you at the end of the season when i was having those hiccups traditional bow hunting there and uh (laughs) it's you know going into it with that mentality i find is like one thing and being like you know and in the heat of the moment when you know if i missed or you know you have a close encounter but you don't like seal the deal or you know it's fair chase and they get away um (laughs) i walk away from those instances being like I want to hang it up. I want to quit. This is bull, bogus, you know, <laughs> but then, you know, you think about it and it's like, man, to have those interactions even is just so like, it's such a win. Right. And I find it's, it's hard to remind ourselves that sometimes in the heat of the moment, if things go left, you know, and it doesn't go in, in your favor or something like that. And it's frustrating and difficult. Um, but in the same instance, like to reflect on it or to try to carry that as much as possible is, really the key i think like you're saying for sure to enjoying it all the time because there's just some mornings that like you say you don't see any elk and nothing gets better though than just being out there you know you know and and and, you know the thing is is that i realize this now aaron but like and and i didn't appreciate it at the time but as i go back now and remember things like just to go back is that one of the last times my grandfather was able to go hunting with us, well, I said to my dad, I said, we're we going hunting for moose. He goes, yeah, we're taking Guido. And my grand, it's a Ukrainian word for grandpa. 
Yeah. And I said, is Guido coming? Dad goes, yeah, he's going to come. And I kind of went, well, he's not going to be able to keep up. He said, Doug, we're just going to go for a drive. Well, we went out, and we went out by Edson, actually south of Nojack. And we went out, and my grandfather, he sort of sat at the truck with a rifle, and then my dad and I tramped around. Well, we came back at, oh, probably about 11 o'clock in the morning. My, my Guido's sitting there with a cup of coffee in the thermos. And Dad says, well, it's time to have lunch. And I says, well, what are we bringing? Dad pulls out the Coleman pump-up stove. Um cast iron skillet because he had a cat box that I didn't see. Pulled out the cat box. We started a f- little fire and my dad cooked bacon and eggs on a pump-up stove, like the Coleman pump stove, on the back of the tailgate with my grandfather, I, myself, and my dad. And it was probably, yeah. as I think about it now, it was probably one of the more enjoyable, you know, get-togethers because we just sort of sat there like it was a beautiful October with just before Thanksgiving. The sun was shining. You know, you couldn't have asked for anything better. And, yeah, as a young kid, I was disappointed that we didn't get a moose and we didn't get, you know, because, you know, when you're younger, you oh, i got to get something, i got to get something. But, you know, you go back mm-hmm. in time and think about it, like, that was a hell of a good time just to go out and walk, enjoy the day, and have a fire and have breakfast with my grandfather on the back of the tailgate while we're out moose hunting. It's pretty cool. Yeah. No, that's the and, truth for sure. So, no, so it's, uh, that's why the philosophy, and I, I think as I you get older, and like you're only 30, but as you get older, you start to realize that it's the little things that um, just make the day. Like uh, earlier this fall, I was archery hunting, and I was walking, and I, uh, the elk weren't really answering, but I get the odd peep, and I just sort of sat down, and I just sat on the edge of this clearing. And all of a sudden, I got my bow propped up, and I'm sitting there on the edge, and all of a sudden, these two chickadees come up and right by a branch, like not even like a foot from my head. And they're chirping yeah. away, and they're flitting around, and they spent 10 minutes beside me, and I'm going, you know, it was so nice just to see these birds just yeah. flipping around, these little chickadees in the early morning, and it's just like, you know, that made the day, right? It's that one with nature. And I think that comes with... Um like experience hunting, right? Like uh, for nature to kind of act as if like you act normal, like with you around. Right. Um, yeah. I've noticed that a couple times and I kind of, I mentioned that in a couple episodes back there where it was just like, you know, it seems like at times um, there's like nature's behaving as if it knows you're around and like you, you seem like a threat. So it like, you know, the birds won't fly near you and things kind of stay like it's distance yeah. from you. And then there's like times when you've yeah. really just kind of like settled in with it and uh, yeah, things just behave normal and, you know, birds land near you or they're just, yeah, there's just that kind of notion with them around you. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know why it reminded me of a story, but last year in hunting season, in the bow season, I had a hawk pretty much like barrel through the trees, like right at my face <laughs> and oh, wow. r- right before it hit my face. Like I was trying to stay so still and not move and whatever. And I think it was probably like maybe five feet from me or something. It just went straight upward, like went right vertical. And it was just a really cool sight to see it go vertical like that and then go and sit on a branch. And it scared me. Like I didn't move or anything, but I remember like under my breath, I was like, 
shit. Like I like was scared, you know, I like jumped kind of, and I was like so mad at myself for like it making me have like a vocal response where I like out loud, I said something while I was trying to be so quiet. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I just thought it was so funny because yeah, this thing's just like literally I was, you know, we had eye contact or something and it was just flying right at me and I'm like, I'm about to get knocked right out. And yeah, just last second flew up, but it's just funny when things you don't experience that at home, but no, yeah. no, it's, uh, yeah, those are the kind of the moments you kind of go, what the hell just happened here? You know, uh, yeah. like I had a buddy there that he was sitting in his tree stand. He had a bear cub come up the ladder at him. Didn't know it was there <laughs> until just the last second. Well, geez. And he wasn't saying nothing. He got all quiet and wouldn't say a word. And the bear's going up and up. And he says, and you know what, Doug? He said, all of a sudden it sees me. And it was like, you know, Yogi Bear, like with the eyes pop wide open. And you just see like, front shoulders are already past the hind legs getting the hell out of dodge <laughs> he felt a little bit lighter in the shorts too when that was done <laughs> so. that's funny yeah. so, so then primarily like you said with uh bow hunting and rifle hunting like you still kind of yeah. do both but a lot more you're finding just through bow hunting like a yeah, lot more i, guess, I, I do a lot meaning. more bow hunting yeah um, I still like, don't get me wrong. I still like my rifle hunting. Um, mm-hmm. you know, it, but I'm more selective when I go with the rifle. Like there's a, like, unless I'm really got to put something in the freezer, but I, the reason I like archery hunting, it, it, it's, it's so individual and without insulting everybody is that at least with archery, I've yet to see anybody get an animal on a quad or out of a truck window with their bow. Um, yeah, and I think that's the thing. You know, we talked about this before we started here tonight, Aaron. Is that you talked to me like how things have changed? Like you never like, and, and maybe I wasn't aware of it because it. Was, but it was one thing is is that I was brought up. You don't roll down your window and look at something in the bush through a rifle scope. You know, you yeah, binoculars. But there was there was no use. There was none of this Detroit steady rest. Like you walked, mm-hmm. you worked. Um, you know, and people respected that when there was no trespassing signs, you didn't trespass. In fact, you went to the farmer and you asked permission and you thanked them. And usually what you did is at the end of the day is that, like the one farmer there that allows me to hunt, if I get something off his land, I typically bring him salami or sausage that I make homemade. Or I bring him some hamburger. It's my way of saying thanks for letting me hunt on your land. You know? Absolutely. Um, but, what, but what I find is that, and, and don't get me wrong, Aaron, please, but... I find that we're so enamored with all these big stars that are getting paid to promote and everything else and blah, blah, blah. You know, like, so now everybody's after, it's got to be a 170 buck. It's got to be a 190. And we portrayed that any, any animal, unless it's like a 180 or 190 weight tail, or it's a 350 bull elk. And I see this on Facebook. The guy will go, Mm -hmm. my first bull kill, but not the biggest buck. You know, I, you know, bucks a little bit small. Why apologize with an archery yep. with a bow? Any animal is a trophy, whether it's a mm-hmm. it's a little fawn or a little doe, a little yearling buck, a button buck to a big old monster. Anything with a bow mm-hmm. is, in my mind, a trophy for the simple fact is that you got within that animal safe zone. Um, yeah, and. 
you know, and, and that's where I see the changes. Like when I was growing up, it was about sustenance. It was about filling the family freezer. And like, like when I was a young kid, I was every once in a while allowed to go with my dad on these hunts. And they were 10 day hunts out west of Edson, north and west. And there would be a group of eight hunters and we'd be wall tents set up. And I remember doing my homework by a Coleman lantern. Because um, wow. that was the only way I could go. And on one of those trips there, we were lucky enough because at that time in Alberta, you had a choice. You had to get a moose tag or you got an elk tag. And they had to take a choice between either a whitetail or a muley, but you could have two tags max, but you couldn't have an elk and a moose, and you couldn't have two deer. You could have one, one of the big, the big, the big four of the big two. You could take one, and then so the way the cap would be is is that everybody would have their full two tag allotment, but one guy would be an elk and a whitetail, the other guy would be a moose and a muley, and and then that yeah. way, and we partied hunt right as much as the Alberta government didn't like it. Everybody partied hunting. So that way there was meat in the freezer. And, you know, at the end of the day, yeah, there were some pretty nice racks we left in the bush. There were some pretty nice racks that are hanging on the walls. But at the end of the day, I remember sitting there cutting up meat at this guy's garage. And we would be on a weigh scale dividing the meat up equally amongst all eight hunters. And so everybody got their X amount of pounds of meat. There was no, you know... And we all partake, and that was part of it. And then you took your meat home, and you wrapped it, and away you went. And that was your meat supply. And that's where it was, where it was like, in my mind, it, things started to change. Because when you saw the advent of Will Primos and some of these other videos that were coming out, they always talked about the big bulls. There was, yeah, and I, I got to give Will Primos credit. He, um, in his videos, will always pay respect to the animal and to God for the animal they harvested. But... It started at the beginning of the trophy class or trophy hunting, and so we've seen this progression. and And I and I think we're I see a lot of the hunting shows today. Like I like Bone Collector with T Bone Taylor. Um, I like yeah. McMillan, uh, McMillan out of Kansas, because when he hunts, it, yeah, it's about someone getting big deer, but it's also about the story behind the hunt. And there's a lot of that going on. And I think what I see now is is that. I see these some guys, they're so hung up on trying to get the biggest, baddest buck in the county. And Okay, that's your choice. That's fine. But don't apologize if you shoot a 140. Like, just be mm-hmm. happy you got something, you know. And it, it's, uh, you know, it, it's, it's just my philosophy is that I think this is where the changes happen is that, and, I, you know, this is where, Aaron, you're being kind of a breath of fresh air because when you're talking to me about how you were going after with your recurve and, you know, you're having your trials and tribulations, but you're still, but you know, you were, you, you get it now you get it. And I think that's where I feel sorry for some of the guys that hunt today. They don't get it. Mm-hmm. They don't get the fact is, is that it's not about how big a horns you get. Yeah. They're nice to have, but as I've told many people, I've yet to make a good souffle or a good roast of horns. <laughs> I sure can about a good backstrap and a tenderloin. You know? Yeah. So... Well, and that's it for sure. And I know this is something like I know I, I don't know if I mentioned to you before. I've definitely said before, but it's just it's tough because you know I I'm exactly the same way that you know when there's all the different quotes that people say, or like you know it's a freezer filler or you know first buck and that it had to fill my tag anyway or something whatever it is, right? And it's like you said, it's like you don't need to apologize to that or feel like you need to online. And that's the unfortunate reality that like social media and these like you say sometimes the yeah. bigger kind of superstar hunters and stuff that will 
you know, make a guy feel like they have to like justify their actions. And it's like, you, you justified your action the moment that you squeeze the trigger or let go of the string or whatever. Right. Like, um, and that, and you know, you did it within legal parameters. Like that's the tag you're on the property. You had permission for, you know, you should be happy and you should be proud of that. And, you know, if you want to show the picture to people online and say, this is what I took this year, all the power to, if you have a story to it, that's meaningful, all the power to you. You know what yeah. I mean? Like I'm never going to see yeah. someone with a small buck and be like, Oh, why'd you take that? Right. And then from a conservation perspective, it's so frustrating because, you know, there's like, I know now. And like when I was talking to you at the tail end of that season with uh, the stuff I was getting into with traditional, I, and I can't remember because I think it was right around the middle to the end when I was talking to you, but I ended up having seven encounters with bucks, um, none that I could seal the deal on. So definitely a little bit discouraging, but in the same instance, I don't I don't know when else in my life I've been able to have that many experiences because if it was with a rifle, one would have been taken with a compound bow. You know what I mean? I wouldn't have had that next yeah. one and then that next one or whatever. Yeah. Um, so I learned I learned so much in that little period of time at the end of it, but one of the things I realized was I still am not running any trail cameras on this property. And now I feel like I have a better understanding of maybe uh, the genetics or the like population that's more so in that area than I ever did with trail cameras. Cause it's such a small window into there where, you know, while I'm out there, the more I'm out there because it's a lot harder to be successful with a traditional bow. Like it just pushed me to be out there a lot more and see a lot more. And I just, kind of got an understanding more of what was out there and man we got some beautiful bucks out there still like some still bow zone kind of giants running around uh and some real gorgeous guys i got to kind of lay my eyes on as <laughs> for lack of better words <laughs> that doesn't sound right but you know and then uh it's just i also seen a lot of bucks like we've got this one out there that's got this i don't know it's like it's like a vertical beam. Like it's like not even growing its beam properly. Right. And it's tines aren't coming off properly. Like one side's normal, the other side's wacky. Right. And then you get this whole conservation thing and guys saying like, Oh, it's a cull buck. Right. Like I took this buck and I know it's a smaller buck, but I needed to cull the genetics out of the area or whatever. It's just like in the grand scheme of things, it's, there's so much argument back and forth for conservation or, you know, even trophy hunting, letting them get to a certain size. But, you know, then the issue, you know, that works good for sheep, but then you do that with deer. And now you have all these deer that don't even get to that size because the genetics won't let them. So you just spread more, you know, it's, I don't think I personally will figure it out. And when I'm, like you say, with a, a bow, it's like, whatever you do take is a trophy. And if the goal is to feed your family at the end of the day, and like, there's no need to justify it in my eyes, you know? But. Well, no, and I, I agree. And like, um, so for example, here I sold a bow to a kid here uh, last summer, and I helped him along and trailed along, and you know he's got his buddies he's hunting with. And I asked how he made out this year, and he goes, "Didn't get my trophy buck." I said, you "Have a chance at any does?" Oh, I had lots of does close by. I says, "Why didn't you shoot a doe?" Well, I wanted yeah. a trophy buck, and I said, "Well, to me, and this is what I learned early: your first bow kill." It's the first animal that presents itself because you're going to eat it. So if yeah. it's a doe, be proud of it. And I'll, I'll, my very first bow kill was a doe, 28 yards yeah. away. And I was nervous as all hell and I was scared to take a shot. And I finally did it. And that's when I finally get, okay, now 
but I got lucky. Um, mm-hmm. But to me, yeah, we all would like to have that wall hanger. And I'll, I'll be blunt. I have one that's Boone and Crockett. I shot when yeah. I was 14 um, with a rifle and didn't realize how big it was until I took it to the fishing game measuring day and they said, oh, it's Boone and Crockett. And I went, oh, okay, whatever that meant. But I was <laughs> when I shot you know, well, 14 years old, growing up with food, and all that yeah. saw was this big buck along a fence line. And the first thing my dad says, oh, you got a big buck. He says, yeah. He says, yeah, but you know what? This thing's got some big back straps. This is going to be good eating. You know? Yeah. And so, you know, and yeah, I've got it mounted. I've got a wall. I've also got some other ones. Like, I've got a couple of mule deer that I got with my first mule deer with a bow. I've got yeah. the skull, European skull up in the wall. It's It's... I'm not going to apologize. It doesn't, it just doesn't even make Pope and Young, but it was my first meal there. And I'm very proud of that one. And Absolutely. I worked hard for that. I snuck in on that one. I walked a lot of miles on that and I drug them a lot of miles. So yeah. I had a game card, but I didn't drag them, but I put them on the game card. But I walked in four and a half miles into the Milk River Ridge because I was living in Southern Alberta. And that's where I got my first meal deer buck. And wow. I'm proud of that buck. I at him while I'm looking at the pillow stove, and I remember the hunt to this day. I can remember that hunt. I know exactly I think how it portrayed down. That is the trophy. I was going to say that's the you know to look at that and yeah. to have that memory and to like you that the antlers don't describe that trophy either. You know, what I mean, it's the work and nope. what you put into it, right? But no. Nope. So, like a good example is this. Um, you know, when we take a look at it, is that. And I think this is where I think the hunting has changed. Um, when when I was younger and we were into archery, one of my buddies got a, a doe. Like he was like oh seventeen. I still was still hadn't even pulled the bow back on a deer. Mm-hmm. We were so happy for him, and we we thought he was king because my God, you shot this doe with like ten <laughs> yards of the bow. Yeah, and we were all we were proud of him. And he was proud of that. And I'm going, this is where I think the change has really happened. And I, I and don't get, get me wrong on this, Aaron, but I think as along with that though, too, is that I think the respect for the animal has been lost too, as yeah. we've gone through, like there's you, okay. There's Corey. There's some other people that I hang around with and I'm using my Cody fingers for the simple fact that they have the same values about the animal. But I have run across other hunters that personally, to them, this is just a game and they have no respect for wildlife. And I just go, you know yeah. what? I really don't need to be around you guys. And yeah. I'm not saying I'm holier than now. And, you know, I'm, you know, I've, we've all got our faults, but uh, I think when it comes to hunting, I think it's just a matter of, in my mind is what is the real reason why we're out there? And I think this is the people that I hang out with. Yeah. It's great to get something, but the first thing is just to be outside and to enjoy mm-hmm. that's that's the first start right but anyways it's uh yeah. it, it does the change you know it's that's where i see the changes and i hate to say this but i really would love to go back to with the bow equipment i have now <laughs> yeah <laughs> go back, Think that, yeah go back to go back to the seven you know so yeah because i don't think you you're know, the only like, one yeah, I'll do that. Yeah. Well, you know, like I grew up in St. Albert and I used to, with my dad on Saturday mornings in the first part of deer season, 
we used to walk out of the front door of the house, walk down the crescent, five houses, cross a road into a field and start hunting deer. Now, can you do that today? No. (laughs) You'd be arrested before you even got to the the fifth house. (laughs) Oh, yeah. You know, well, you think about it, Aaron, is that back in the 70s, so just to be a little more nostalgic, we used to get the Sydney I Robinson catalog from Winnipeg. Um, that was the beginning of fall. It would show up about July, August. Uh, Hudson's Bay used to have their pre-hunt special where they would bring in shotgun shells and all that for the upcoming goose season. And on the Labor Day weekend, they'd have a big Labor Day shotgun sale, uh, wow. shell sale. And you go to Hudson's Bay and then... Um, <laughs> You could, uh, oh, no, I'm like, this is how it used to be in the 70s. And then yeah. um, um, just about every store, Woodward's, which you wouldn't know, but Woodward's used to be a department store where the uh, Westmont Mall is. That was, um, they had a sporting goods oh. section where it was gunshot. And they had, like, it was just, there was this whole thing where hunting was considered to be Maybe honorable, not honorable. Honorable is the wrong word, but hunting was not looked at it the same way it is now. But the stores catered, and and then Simpson Sears, of course. But it was Sydney I Robinson catalog that used to come. That you go look at, oh look at that gun, look at that, oh look at that clothing, you know, and just and it was like our wish book, you know. (laughs) So yeah, yeah, like your Sears catalog or whatever. (laughs) Your Sears, yeah. yeah. So and then we got one time my. relative sent us a Cabela's catalog. Well, oh my God. It was just <laughs> like Christmas Day, you know, and just unreal. But, you know, and, and so you see that through the changes now, would I say that there's more game now? I'd say there's probably more game available in a lot of areas that weren't around. Like hmm. there were areas on the Willingdon Two Hills area, you'd be hard pressed to find a deer. Now you can find deer pretty good. And it's because of agriculture. Uh, some land was opened up, and I think a little better game laws in that they managed uh, populations based upon, you know, they watched. Because at one time, there used to be able to that you could actually shoot a doe or a buck. It didn't matter what. And then for a few mm-hmm. years there, they quit allowing shooting does. All of a sudden, we've got whitetail populations. And so, and so this is where I'm getting a little frustrated with our present government is that we talk about hunting opportunities, but they're so worried that we're going to have a Peace River situation, Grand Prairie situation mm-hmm. in central Alberta. They keep killing cows, like cow moose and cow elk. And it's driving me nuts. Like, yeah, it's about hunting opportunity for my kids, for your kids. And, yeah. you know, we keep killing, like, for example, they had a draw here in the zone that I live in that I know of that there was only about maybe seven cow moose. Well, they drew 128 tags for this zone. And I'm going, why? Like, and they're saying, well, there's, they're getting hit by cars and I'm just going, this isn't management. Um, you mm-hmm. know, so I, I really think this is where something I like to see a little more is that this Alberta fishing game used to be a very strong organization. And they had a lot of pull with the government. And I don't think they have that pull anymore, but they used to actually hold the biologists accountable. And, and this mm-hmm. is where I see is that, yeah, we do have more whitetail. We're actually seeing elk back in areas that they used to be. Um, the moose population is now in areas that they never were, like seeing it in the middle mm-hmm. of canola fields down by Minster. Um, yeah. So, yeah, there's more game now. So that's where 
It was, I will say, though, Aaron, is that in the late 60s and the 70s, it was harder to find deer. It was harder to find moose in certain areas. But, you know, there's always the Edson zone. You could always go to Edson and try to find a moose. But now you can see moose just about anywhere. So, like, I would say one thing for the better, there's potentially more animals out here now because of agriculture and food. But um, mm-hmm. the one thing I'm seeing, though, is, is that we also used to also have a little bit more wetlands and and bush and everything else that was left alone because of smaller equipment. Now I'm seeing clearing, and I'm not blaming farmers because they do feed, but I'm tired of being seeing wetlands drained. And there used to be a lot of duck shooting we used to do, but there's a lot of ducks now. But we used to do a lot mm-hmm. of puddle jumping, you know, and it was a lot of fun. But, ah, you know, things going to change. I can't stop. Maybe I'm getting that age where I don't like change, but, you know, some of it's been for the better. Some of it's been for the worse in my mind when it comes to hunting. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, along the same side of it, as you're saying that too, like the social media element has played such a crazy role in it a hundred percent. And I like what you mentioned too, about like, you know, the life of the animal is getting a little bit lost amongst it as well. Um, yeah. You know, it's kind of funny. I don't know why it reminded me of this and this could kind of be like a side, I don't know how, like I kind of related with all of it, but literally just the other day. So today, um, like we have a family-based uh, gas fitting business here in uh, Edmonton and area. And we had, we took today off for like holidays. So yesterday would have been our last day of work before the holidays. Right. Um, yeah. And going out yesterday morning, uh, you know, I don't know what it was with time of day with the sunrise or what have you, when, what time we were leaving the shop and whatever. Um, but a guy and I were going out to do a few jobs and as we were leaving our shop, we had, so in the uh, property that I hunt, there was two moose and then, and they were just out in the middle of the field eating. And it's great to see. I know that there's the moose that come around there. I know like I helped the one guy drag the one moose that he shot this year, a beautiful bull moose that he got um, out from that property this year too. Uh, And we know like there's, you know, about four or five of them that kind of cruise through and hang out for a little while and they'll leave and come back and do their circle. But seeing them there yesterday morning. Uh, so there's two of them. And then there was four whitetail feeding in a field and this would have been East down towards our Drossen. Uh, and then a little bit after that, we had a buck cross the street right in front of us. And this was, we're getting into, we were going to work out in the country basically just doing a little bit yeah. of a job out in the country. Uh, and a beautiful buck just jump across the road and run across in front of us. I mean, we were going slow. It was fine. It wasn't scary at all, but it was just, yeah, another one that we saw and then did the job and everything. And we left and it was probably closer to about maybe 10 or 11 in the morning. And I was thinking, oh, everything would be back and bedded down and then saw another three mule deer. Um, and I like tallied it all up and I was like, man, I saw like 10 different big game animals this morning in like, the span of one commute, you know, I was like, this isn't like, yeah. this was wild. You know, <laughs> I was like, you don't see this every day. And the guy that I work with, uh, he doesn't hunt too much or anything. He's getting into it and everything. So, um, it was cool cause we were talking about it. Right. And, you know, it's just something funny and I don't know why this really kind of cling to this conversation too, with a lot of people were saying like, you know, I messaged like my family about it i was like because i was talking to my mom and my brother at the time and i was like oh i just saw so much stuff this morning like what a beautiful morning right like it was just the sunrise was beautiful seeing all of this big game was beautiful you know 
Um, yeah. And I just couldn't help but mention, you know, it's the last day before the holidays. I was just like, man, I'm having a great day, you know, like beautiful morning, yeah. tons of animals around, just having a, just a stellar morning. I was texting you about the bow and everything <laughs> you and I were talking yeah. or whatever. And uh, I just, you know, so many people said, oh, too bad you can't shoot them. You know what I mean? Like too bad. It's not like too bad. It's out of season or whatever. And not even for a second in my mind was I like, oh, the rut is late or too bad it's not in season. Like, I just, just like, it's so beautiful to see these things out and about because they're so hard to see. Like, and it just reminds me of when people are like, you know, that there's lots of people that don't hunt that will say like, oh, there's tons of deer on this property if you hunt over here. Like, I see them all the time. And it's like, that's great. But like, to actually, you know, cross paths in an archery situation and seal the deal, like, it's just something that's so challenging right but when you're talking about um people like not really appreciating that way for some reason it just reminded me of that because i was like even just seeing them you know out in the wild is like you already can't help but appreciate it or like love the animals that we end up dealing with right it's just but yeah well you know and i agree and that is a good day. Like I take my bird dog every morning for a walk as the sun's rising and I wait till the sun's up because coyotes seem to like my bird dog. Anyways, long story mm-hmm. short is that for me, uh, going for a walk here the other day, like or this morning here, we went for a walk this morning and in like in Malay where we have, we have what called the iron horse trail. Well, we have this field that I shoot a hundred yards with my bow. That's part of their railway easement or whatever at the time mm-hmm. and the dog is going nuts and i can't figure what the hell she's after and i look and here there's uh fresh whitetail tracks a whitetail came in fed on this little field was walking right down the iron horse ahead of us and my dog was right on it and i'm just going you know this is pretty cool i called her back and i think the buck was there it was a buck because just i could just i could tell the way it was walking but long story short it was just nice that the birds were singing and then there's this there's these wildlife coming right into town like and this was a couple of years ago this was actually during the pandemic when we got shut down we actually had in the town of Malague river otters two of them wow right we're going right down our street and that was when the whole world <laughs> was shut down he's moving around so it tells you how quickly is that when all of a sudden you take away human pressure how things change in a hurry like we've got video mm-hmm. of it and it's like a river otter and the closest river is like 12 miles away <laughs> and you're kind of going okay what the <laughs> hell are you doing okay but it was interesting but yeah. no yeah. no but like That's you just were funny, asking man. Me, like my favorite hunts are and you know one thing I was going to tell you is that I have to tell you this one here is that it, it yeah. didn't happen with me, but it, it did happen with my dad. Is my my dad was friends with a school teacher, and the school teacher wanting to go elk hunting was a hunter. And dad says, "Well, I got a spot we can go." So picture this: a '66 four door Cadillac, white in color, and they went <laughs> elk hunting. Now picture That's... this: seven hours later, coming down the crescent is this white Cadillac with an elk head strapped to the roof the hind quarters are in the trunk the front shoulders are in the back seat coming into seeing how that's and they went up because they got it and got this elk and so here's this white cadillac 
on Gillian Crescent and St. Albert with covered, not covered in blood, but blood from the, and here's this rack tied. And I just, to this day, I just, I, I still remember that thing. Like it was as of yesterday, there's this dad's coming home with his buddy, Andy, who's the school teacher. And they use the school teacher's car and it's a white Cadillac. That's so funny. Yeah, I can picture that you know, perfect because it must have been a totally different kind of St. Albert because I grew up a little bit in St. Albert myself and I just picture yeah. like, man, that would just not even fly nowadays. I wonder what kind of looks you'd be getting or whatever. I'm sure you'd still get oh, some thumbs up, but. <laughs> oh, you'd get some thumbs up, but no, you know, <laughs> you know, you think of, you know, like, cause it was part of the norm. People like understood uh nobody said anything about it yeah and so but but anyways it, it just it's something that you know it was the norm at the time you know you think about it, it when i was going to school aaron i had a 72 chevy and on my seat behind my truck i had a gun rack now when yeah. i went to school i didn't have guns in there but when it was fall time there was nothing to see my guns hanging in the gun rack right in the back window like that was yeah. just the norm right yeah so, but but anyways oh, it's just back crazy like, yeah like you know and it, like you were asking me like you know you were saying well i'll probably ask you what's your favorite hunting story well yeah that's literally you know, where i was gonna go so <laughs> let's get into it, it it doesn't it actually doesn't involve um harvesting an animal um I love it. What it was is in the pork. It was in the Porcupine Hills, and to this day, well, I have two of them because it's similar. One happened a couple of years ago because it was exactly the same way. But I'll tell you the first one. The first one was in the Porcupine Hills, and um, I had worked hard at getting permission on this guy's land. He owned quite a few quarter sections. He finally relented and said, "Okay, Doug, if you get an animal down, you can only carry with the game car. You pack it out, no vehicle, blah blah." I said, "Perfect." This was just before the Thanksgiving weekend, and I'm up in the porcupine, and all of a sudden I hear, and, and I'm elk hunt with my bow, and all of a sudden I hear a roar, or like a whistle, a bugle, and I'm going, okay, there's no other hunters here, so it's elk. What it was is that the rut was in full bore, and so there was over 200 cow elk with probably 50 to 60 bulls, and for four hours I got stuck in this brush pile per se i couldn't shoot i couldn't look because the elk were running everywhere and they were and going crazy and it was like that classic video and um at the time of course no cell phones so i couldn't even take videos or camera to prove it but at the time my my uh i'm sitting there and i'm watching this and i watched this for four hours and it was just like the herds moving and the bulls chasing the satellites. And then it's just, and they're bugling and snorting. And and it was a beautiful October day. And it was just one of the best experiences. Then finally the, the elk had enough and they just buggered off and they moved on to another field. But it was just something that I just, to this, it's still vivid. I still think about it and say, you know what? That was a fantastic day. Probably one of the best hunting days in my life, you know, and then, um, the other one I was going to really want to tell you about is that, and I think I might've told you this a little bit, but I was up in Northwest of, I was in North of Edmonton in an area where I had permission to hunt and there was elk there. And 
the farmer had said, yes, please, you know, go ahead, have some fun, you know, and just if you get something, come and get me and I'll get it out for you kind of thing. And I had walked in there and quietly by myself and I sat there and it was a nice Saturday afternoon and it's calm. And so all I did is I set up a couple of cow decoys and I let out a chirp and all of a sudden I got a response. And then he come close, another response. And all of a sudden I started hearing cow chirping. And here there was, it's about a 300 class bull in this field. And it's in a cornfield. And where he played hide and seek for an hour and a half, I get closer, he'd pull his cows away. And we went back and forth. I finally had a chance at him, severe quartering angle at about 40 yards. And I went, this is after probably two hours of him and I playing cat and mouse and bugling and and of course, I was carrying a little decoy with me, a cow elk decoy. And he'd see it and he'd start coming. And then all of a sudden, he'd stop and he'd say, you know what? I got the real thing over there. I can't really prove that that's real. So I'm not going closer. And I said, you know what? You win. You deserve to live another day. And I basically let him walk. I didn't try to take the shot or force it because that's usually when shit happens. And yeah. that was just a sight to behold where he gathered up his 20 cows left the field and went back in the bush. And I thought you couldn't beat that day, you know? Man. So, you know, and I phoned my dad and my dad at that time could no longer hunt because he had lost his vision and he was just unreal. And he's asking me, well, what'd you do there? And what'd you, and here he's offering me advice. He's 80, 84 years old. <laughs> saying, well, you should have done, should have done that. And I said, nah, you know what? This bull knew what the hell he didn't get big by being stupid. So, it was yeah. that to me, you know, like I've harvested some decent sized elk. I've harvested big white tails. I've harvested some decent sized moose and some lots of moose. But when it really comes down to, if I had to ask like the two favorite, those are probably my two favorite hunts just mm-hmm. for the fact is that I didn't end up with anything, but it was just to watch nature and everything what elk can do. And like, I'm in love with elk, like just, um, as a kid, I had anything to do with elk. I had books. I had posters. I, I had all the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation posters. I still got them all. Um, wow. But i just an alcoholic. And I found as I get older, you don't have to work as hard as what we think. Like you mentioned earlier, you need to be in the gym. Yeah, if you're going to yeah. do the backcountry hunts that he likes to do, yeah. But today with the elk where they're at now, you just got to take your time and be confident and be just understand elk. And, and one thing I've learned through all the years of elk hunting, elk hate silence. It scares them more than you making noises. If you've ever mm. been in a herd of elk, and I don't know if you have, I don't know if you have, but I've been amongst elk where a cow elk walking by me and you'd swear that you were in the middle of a city in a traffic jam with horns blaring because they're <laughs> chirping and They crunch and they groan and they fart and they moan and they just, it's just, and what I found with elk is, is that as long as you don't make human walking noises, but you make a step here, step there, and you crack a branch, they're more at ease than if you're being trying to be deadly quiet. So, hmm. and that's what I've learned through the years with elk is that, yeah, you got to really watch your wind. Like one scent of a human, and I had this happen this fall, where the wind switched on me on the one time that I'd had a good chance at him and I got close. And I was making noise when I was walking. I was just walking like two steps and then stop and then take four steps and stop and really no cadence to anything. And I was within about 90 yards of this bull 
and he wasn't there. And then all of a sudden the wind switched and all of a sudden my back, my neck got cool. And I went, Oh, and the next thing you know, the whole herd's gone, but they weren't, they weren't uptight with my walking, but I have been where elk get there and they, they, they know there's something there and you're being deadly quiet and silent. And that's when they get spooky and that's when they go on all hmm. fours, you know, and that's what I've found. So that's really interesting. It kind of reminds me of moose in a way sometimes too, that way, like just where you yeah. be calling and raking and making all this racket and they've come in just yeah. making racket. Like, yeah. yeah. But, but they can also, I've seen bull moose and bull elk. Uh, I've had a bull elk. So this was a number of years ago, but I'm sitting there. I'm on the edge of a ledge of a hill. I'm calling, doing a little bit of raking and just something my spidey senses tingle. I look over my shoulder. Here's a bull up looking right at me at 10 yards. Never wow. even heard him come in. So they can be stealthy. And I've seen big bulls come in that way too. I called in a bull mm-hmm. who was here a couple of years ago with my buddy. And we were looking at the one that was coming, but we never heard the one that came in from behind us and blew the whole thing. And I just uh-huh. went. And so they can be stealthy too. But I think what I find amazing about elk and moose though is you call and they can pinpoint you. Like I've called in moose from a mile and a half away and wow. up on a hillside and I'm calling and I'm walking and they, they've got come within 50 yards of where I called. And wow. because usually within the last 200 yards, I shut up. So to be within 50 yards, they, they have that radar that just blows me away. And elk are the mm-hmm. same way. Um, this is a couple of years ago, but I, I called, I'm sitting on this edge of this hillside uh, on the edge of this clearing and I called and, and I called and I waited and I called and I waited and ran through calling see if it's nothing. So I moved about a mile down, farther down this area. And I said, you know what? I'm tired. I'm going home. So I walked back and I had to go back right through the area called and right where I was sitting, there's fresh elk tracks right where I was sitting on the hill. Oh. I'm going, geez. And you know, and cause like when I moved to this other area, like, and I, and then when he came to the area, I called and he circled and then he went straight down and went straight north of there. Never followed where I went. So I wow. just went, wow. Yeah. And that's got to frustrate a guy too. I always, I don't know. I have such a bad, men- bad kind of mental game that way that I'm just like, Oh, if I go here and he's there and you know what I mean? Like, this never-ending <laughs> puzzle that you know. That's why I don't have more than one tree stand for for whitetail. Like, and yeah. especially with the trad bow now, I'm enjoying just being on the ground a lot more for like for whitetail yeah. specific. Because whitetail, I find like, and I asked this to a guest a little while ago, is like if they ever heard them come in. Because I personally have never actually heard a whitetail come in, other than I, you know, the one I, I had one that we kind of got into a standoff and we were grunting at each other and freaking out, but. As for them just coming in normally, like whether it's the rut or not, and they're, if they're not making any like grunting or wheezing noises, right? Um, if they're just kind of coming in, minding their business, I've never heard them. I always see them. And even then, like these are at the trad yardages of like 30 yards and I'm still not really hearing them until they might like spook and run away and, you know, kick grass and stuff. But it's, I don't know. It's just so funny because I could never run to tree stands. Cause I was like, you know, it's the same thing. Sometimes even like ice fishing, I get that where I'm like, 
I'll go hole hopping. And then I'm like, man, I should. And then the jaw jacker goes off like over at the tent that I was just at. You know what I mean? I'm like, why am I running around? You know, like, (laughs) you know what? You know, but it is natural, Aaron, for for to do something like that. Like, it it just is. And I used to do a lot like what you're doing now. I used to do that in my 30s too. You need to be here, need to be there. What I'm learning is that I. No, I'm serious. It comes with maybe age experience, but I think it comes with the fact that you got knee joints that like, I got an artificial knee on one and I got another one that's probably going to need replacing here in a couple of years. But you know, you learn that, okay, I can't run the hills for 20 and 30 miles and I can't be here or there. But what mm-hmm. I think I have learned is that through just scouting and stuff like that. Okay. When the wind's out of the West, these are the area that I have to be. When the winds are the east, this is the area I have to be, and this is where I have to go. And and like, there's one spot there. The only way I'll ever go into that area is when I've got a north wind. So it hmm. maybe gets hunted maybe once or twice a year if you get lucky. And it's just that's, you know, I know what you're going through because I'm the same way. Like, oh, maybe I should go here. Maybe I should go there. And I finally, what I do now, okay, I go to this spot. It doesn't matter if it happens, it happens. If it doesn't, it doesn't, you know, and it just, but I have to give you credit, Aaron, you're going the trad way. I think that's great. And I know today you were telling me, you were texting me that you're working on us. You're working on a self bowl and I'm like, good for you. I would love to go to trad, but I don't have the time to spend to practice the way I want to practice. And you know what? Maybe compound is a cop out, but, um, I have shot traditional. I did have a recurve up to a couple of years ago that I would shoot, but I was never confident past 20 yards with it. And I just, you know, for me, I'm just going, if I can't devote the time to ethically harvest an animal, I don't want to do it. So mm-hmm. that point is that, you know what? I know I can be ethical with my compound out to 50 yards, 60 yards, and I can live with that. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. It's definitely something that I don't actually think in my own head I realize why I'm doing it fully. <laughs> it's driving me nuts. Um, but I think when you go back to that Fred Bear quote of, uh, you know, it's really instilling that in myself that, uh, you know, success is kind of can be measured in many ways. Like this year, as much as I felt defeated at the end of the year, I really took time to sit back and reflect on it and go, you know what? Like that's a whole pile of success that I've never experienced in the same instance to be interacting with calling in, you know, being that close to that many deer. Like it really made me feel like the strategies I was using, even though it didn't seal the deal, I was really onto it. You know, like I was really connecting to, like nature in the sense that it was showing itself. It wasn't like there's the moments I remember we talked about, like, you know, the vision of like when you make eye contact with something or when you talked about like that hex camo and the, the heart rate thing. And I don't know if I told you this, cause this is, I actually talked about this on the podcast, but I don't know if I told you this Um, was after you and I had that conversation about the heart rate increasing. Um, I had another buck come in and he was coming in quartering towards, and then he was about probably 23 yards and he started giving me a broadside opportunity and I was on my knees and 
I really kept my heart rate down and I kept, uh, like I was very paying attention to all my like, kind of innate, like the adrenaline dump, but keeping my heart rate down, controlling of the breath, like all the innate human uh, yeah. reactions or whatever you want to call it. And uh, yeah. as soon as I went to draw the bow back, I felt my heart rate increase. And then I probably drew back no more than two inches. And it was like he immediately picked his head up, looked at me and took off. Yeah. And I don't know if it was just because you and I just talked about it <laughs> and that I really <laughs> noticed that like my heart rate, the minute my heart rate increased and escalated, he like, I don't know if he picked up on that or whatever, you know, when you're talking about the magnetic field of, you know, these yeah. things or the sixth sense stuff and yeah, it just kind of blew me away. Um, yeah. But yeah, to get that, well, no. you know, yeah. Well, no, like, no, and the thing is, is, like, I have always been a fan of Fred Bear. In fact, it was the stories about, about Fred Bear that got me into archery as a kid. But there's a book mm -hmm. called uh, Fred Bear, the biography of a uh, outdoorsman. Um, and I re read the book. It's by Charles Kroll. It's a really mm -hmm. good book and explains Fred Bear and how he brought up, uh, how he got the archery business going, how he hunted, what he did. Um, but a lot of people wouldn't know this, but Fred Bear used to hunt with a plaid jacket. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And she twenty years no, but why? Like he never went over a tree. He never went under a tree that was a deadfall. He went around the tree. He walked slowly. He's and this is where it really I think was maybe one of the turning points. Like my dad liked to walk, and I liked to walk, and we used to hunt with one guy that used to go pick a corner of a cut line where we used to go moose hunt, and he'd pack mm -hmm. a lunch, and he'd pack something to sit on. And he'd sit there all day and never move. Just take his time. And he always got an animal. And hmm. I, I know a guy that's an archery hunter that's like that. He just picks a spot. Um, it's ground blind. He sits in the ground blind and he knows which one it. He just sits there all day and he relaxes. And his wife does the same thing. And they get their animals every year. They just yeah. take, they just go slow with everything they do. And I'm, you know, and I think that's what traditional archery, I think, like, good on you for doing this. I think this is fantastic, and I wish I had your patience. I don't think I have developed that yet. <laughs> so. yeah. I, I feel like it's like making, it's like forcing me to develop it because I'm like, you know, part of me doesn't feel like I've fully developed it either. It's just, um, it's kind of forcing that. And I feel like whatever it is, when we go back to the talk about, you know, antler size and things like that. Um, I hold like, I would, I will happily take a doe. I'll happily, you know, and I know that there's a lot of does in my area. It's not like one of those things that, you know, um, I'd happily take any of these spikers, especially when some of them are kind of offhanded looking weird with, you know, their main beam growing vertical or whatever. But I just, I have a feeling that whatever happens when it does, like when I connect with something with the there, I feel like there will be a form of, um, exchange there that i don't know if it's an energy exchange or another way of appreciating the animal or um connecting to like the primitive mindset of being human or what what it is you know but um i just feel like there's going to be like a deeper connection there but it's also hard because i find you get this um you know and i see guys commenting on things like this online all the time where it's like oh you know 
let's take an animal as ethically as possible with a rifle because we've developed the technology and all this stuff. Like, why would we resort back to those kind of things? Right. Um, and I find that sometimes like a tough ethical argument in my own head. Like I haven't wounded anything or anything like that with a trad bow. You know, I mean, we've, I've wounded something with my compound bow. I think a lot of people have, and we don't talk yeah. about those stories a lot. And I think it's still very valuable to talk about those stories because if it hasn't happened to you, it ha you haven't hunted long enough kind of thing, you know, like um, it, the unfortunate reality can happen, but uh, yeah. it's just tough because, and I mean, people injure things or like wound things with rifle as well. Right. But I always get in this like yeah. ethical dilemma in my head that is like, I obviously want to serve, the peace and justice for that animal. Like when I took that buck with my compound bow at the beginning of the year, that was like yeah. one of my favorite instances because it was just so quick and clean. And like, that's what everybody wants, yeah. right? With that 15 yeah. yards away, he ran like 20, 30 yards passed out and you basically watch him die right there. Like there's no yeah. suffering. There's no tracking blood for two miles. You know, there's like, yeah. Um, so I don't know. Yeah, I do feel like it's forcing that kind of patience. And it's, well, if anything, the way I think about it is it's not making me a worse hunter, you know? No, it's not making a worse hunter. In fact, if you ever pick up the rifle, it'll make you a better hunter. But, you know, like, so, and this is a kind of philosophical thing, but when you think about it, when mm -hmm. you learn the patience of you being with trad, think about how, this patience is being developed. Now, when you start looking at, you've got young kids, mm -hmm. that's the kind of patience you're going to have to have with your young kids when they start growing a little older and they start doing some things that maybe not quite to your liking is, is that patience of, you know, it, it, trust me, it teaches you patience for dealing with other things in life as well. But, hmm. um, it, to me, that's the way I look at it. That's what archery's taught me is, is that, you know what? There are limits. You can't change certain things. Like we all would like to get within another 20 yards of an animal. But I'll admit, um, one, like my, my very first bow kill was an ethical bow kill. The second time, the next year I went out, I took a shot and I pushed it. And I call it pushing this as I forced the situation and mm -hmm. I wounded the animal. I found my arrow. I never did recover the animal. I don't know if the animal survived. It was a bull moose. And it was that resolve there that said, okay, you know what? If I have to pass up a shot, I'm going to. Mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. I don't want to deal with tracking for two days and not finding that animal. And I think the moose survived. But mm -hmm. after two days of trying to find him, I couldn't find him. I found the arrow. The arrow had good blood on it, but it didn't die. And I just said that was my, then I made the conscious thing. I said, okay, I don't need another one of these CFs. And I refuse to do that. And so, and I'm not saying mm -hmm. it's not going to happen again, but mm -hmm. for me, it's the fact that I look at the, I myself have said, okay, because I had a chance, for example, like last, this fall, I could have shot at one elk there. It was about 80 yards. Mm -hmm. And I went, you know what? Just need a little bit of a wind switch. He just needs to take one step instead of being in the lungs, it's in the guts. Do you want to deal mm -hmm. with this? And I said, no. So you just, and I think that's patience that gets taught to you with archery. But I think with you, with trad, I think it even tells you even more like, um, your patience, you're going to learn just to be that much better of a hunter so that compound bow hunting is almost going to be easy to you, you know? <laughs> yeah. 
because it's going to get that much better. It's definitely felt like, and this is by no means really a shot at compound stuff, but it just, I definitely feel like those encounters that I had, like, and I think that's part of the, uh, part of the reason why it just kind of rubs me the wrong way in a way that is just like, you know, all of those experiences, I feel like I could have solidified with a compound bow, you know, like the first yeah. one that yeah. I blatant, like I just straight up missed. Um, and that was after, I think I talked to you like right after that one. Uh, and then I was able to recreate almost that moment, like six more times, (laughs) Um, but they all came in from different angles and they all had their own unique reasons why it didn't work. Right. Um, you know, one, like most of them didn't give me a shooting lane. And then there was the one that I almost had the shooting lane and my heart rate increased and he took off. Right. Um, and he was the only other one that I was about to really draw back on. Right. Um, but it's just funny cause when, like, I think it's a really mature perspective that went like when you're saying you, you could have forced that shot, but instead you were like, you know, well, you know, had he, you know, and that's like a lot of things in life, right? Had it been different? Yeah. Like, what if, you know, yes. our whole lives we can live in that what if realm and had it been different and had yeah. he come here and had he not noticed me yeah. or, you know, and those are yeah. the tough things. Like I find walking away from, a situation where you know the fair chase um resulted in the win of the animal and they ran away scotch-free it's easy for you to be like well had he only come this way and that way and i could have had this and maybe if i didn't do that yeah. and you know it's so easy to beat yourself up in those moments afterwards but i did feel like yeah. with compound i could have solidified a lot of those because they were all somewhat sub 30 yards right uh, well and, so. and that and that's fair though but you have to ask yourself though, is that what you've done is that when we start looking at levels of progression of hunting from let's go easiest to hardest, the easiest mm-hmm. is always going to be with the rifle. You know, you don't have to put your stocking skills and your spawning skills. Compound, yeah, that's the next level tougher. Mm-hmm. You just decided in your own mind that you want to go to that next level. And so you know, like there's a guy that his name's Big Jim. He runs Big Jim Bows out of there, and I listened to a podcast about him. And he was on this podcast talking about recurve versus longbow versus compound versus rifle. And mm-hmm. he just said it really doesn't matter what you use; it's just be proficient at it. Bottom line, that yeah. was all he was saying. And yeah. you know, he's you know, he says. You know, every once in a while, yeah, he'll wound an animal, but, you know, he says there's just nothing you can do about it. He says, hell, we see deer splattered on the highway getting hit by semis, you know. Yeah. Um, but as long as we're doing our job to be the best we can be, what does it matter? And never beat yourself up. If you couldn't get the mm-hmm. shot or you missed a shot, hey, I'd rather you you say, you know what, I tried, I missed Oh, well, next time I'll get them, right? You know, and, mm-hmm. and it's just, you know, there's that old adage, the 100% of the goals you score or, or whatever that Gretzky adage, and I'm not yeah. the adage, but, you know. You miss 100% of the shots that, you don't take. Takes, <laughs> exactly, right? Yeah. <laughs> but, but from a bad perspective, yeah, okay, they're at 30. Well, you know, I've been in that situation too, Aaron, a couple of years ago where I had – this beautiful bull elk, he was an older bull, I could see, and 
Oh, trust me, I was not looking at the horns. I was looking at, oh my God, look at all the roast steaks and hamburger there. And he's he's 78 yards and he knows I'm there. And I'm going, oh, if I could have only had a rifle. And yeah. at the end of the day, I didn't shoot. Walked away and that's because I chose that. But because I am hunting with a compound, I'm allowed to hunt in September when they're rutting. In a lot of areas, yeah. you can't do that. I, you know, I have to take the good with the bad. So if I can't fling an arrow, but at least I'm out there. And it still goes back to what we originally talked about. It's just getting out. And yeah. you know what? That's something that you can talk to your kid about when he starts to hunt about how the trials and tribulations that you went through when you started hunting with a, with a yeah. traditional goal. Like, yeah. I, I just think it's, it's teaching experiences to help you with your kid even, you know. I really value that. I really value that um, perspective and the advice and everything there too. Cause uh, you know, it was really funny that even when that occurrence happened, like mentally I was like, I'm hanging this up. I'm never coming back to it. You know, like I, I'm like the first time I got that close and the shot was there and he presented it and like, you know, it could have been absolutely perfect. He was a beautiful buck, you know, like would have been just absolutely dialed. Yeah. And when all of it didn't go as planned and yeah, just straight up clean mess. Um, you know, it was even when I had, you know, friends that would never like, you know, they're just not interested in shooting traditional at all. And they're like, man, like you got to commit to it. Right. Like they're like, just go out and do it again. Like, just go again. And it was when I was like, okay, like, and having like guys like yourself telling me these kind of things was just the reassurance of being like, yeah, like I got to do this for the reasons why I started in the first place. But then, uh, it's just funny too because you know i had a lot of other people saying like well why don't you bring both out like why don't you bring the comp like when you were like oh um i wish i had a rifle right like what people are like why don't you bring the compound bow and the traditional bow out and they're like and then you just decide in that moment and i'm like my mind's made up way before i leave my door you know what i mean i was like, yeah. I, was like I ain't gonna be bringing two bows out and having a wrist release and a finger tab on and being like which one do i want to pull from the tree no like that's a head that's just not what it is like no. but no you, you, and that, that's part of the hope right it's it's either you're concentrating one or concentrating the other and i find that when mm-hmm. you get diverted like that you know you know, I, I know exactly what you're saying. I've been through that stuff, but that's where I've learned yeah. with time and with that and experiences that when you focus on one, you just stay with that focus and you go with it. And, you know, now I'm not saying is that like I've carried my shotgun with me and going, I'm going out deer hunting or elk hunting and all of a sudden the pheasant hunt or something breaks out. Well, that's a different story, right? So, mm-hmm. yeah, that's, yeah, that's one other thing completely. Yeah. yeah for sure but yeah <sighs> anyways you know what uh it's 10 30 at night here i should yeah. <laughs> my wife but no yeah. it was great talking to you Aaron. And, and if you want me to come back on another time we can talk my philosophy on bow tuning to picking bows to mm-hmm. even more hunting yeah. stories because i had a whole whack of hunting stories i was going to tell you and we kind of got all over the map there but this has been a yeah. great conversation. I really enjoy it. And to me, and it's not to, but, you know, one of the things why I get along with Corey is Corey and I have the same philosophy about enjoying life. Like the way he takes his three boys out and he does things yeah. and make sure they're always going hunting. Like this is what we have to do as, as adults and as teach. And I know for myself right now I'm getting, and it's not to put a feather 
in my cap, but I really enjoy teaching people that want to teach, that want to learn about archery. I have no, I love showing them how to do it and enjoy it. And I got my wife mm-hmm. back shooting her bow, and that, that to me is that this is all part of the game. So, anyways, yeah. But if no, you want just... to have me on again, I'm more than happy to come on again. So, oh, I would absolutely love to, Doug. I just feel like you're a vault of really good information from you know, the knowledge and, you know, honestly, when you like really great conversation, I just could listen to you and the stories and the expertise and the knowledge that you have. So it's funny to like, I just enjoy kind of taking the back seat here and just listening a lot when I'm talking to you. Um, because I just find even just for myself, there's so much that I can learn from you. Right. Um, yeah. and you know, it's funny cause it's it, I don't want you to take this the wrong way in any way, but I just thought it's funny because in a sense when you're like, oh, you know, it's getting late. I should go to bed. You're like one step ahead of me on, on the podcast because you're like, oh, you know, these stories I was going to tell you. I was literally just about to go into like, yeah, like what's one of your favorite stories or something? And then, you know, I'm just about to be like, yeah, yeah you know, it's great talking to you and I'd love to have you on again. And <laughs> you take the words right out of my yeah. mouth. It's just well, funny. No, and I no, just, it, I, I would, you know, like it, yeah, well, I appreciate that. But. You know, no, I, I like I've been listening to the podcast. Like, I got to get back into podcast mode again. Like I told you before, it's just lately I haven't. Yeah, but no, busy, it's busy. been an enjoyable conversation because, in my mind, and we hardly know each other other than the time we talked on the phone and just this and all that. But, and mm-hmm. I know Corey's talked to you, but I think you're the right mind and philosophy, and you fall within my realm of people I don't mind hanging around with and talking to. So. <laughs> it's uh, the philosophies are right, it, and yeah. you know, I I have dealt with people where I've, no, and I told you this before is that no, I don't need to be part of that. So, but mm-hmm. I'm really enjoying this. I've been enjoying podcasts. That paleontology one, I got a kick out of. That was really good. <laughs> I thought that Thank was you. excellent. So, but anyways, anyways, I should jet. Uh, yeah. A Merry Christmas to you and your family. Enjoy your time you too. off. Um, we will text over Christmas because we'll talk. We'll talk about some other things. Some other things that are coming up, and we'll figure out something. How's that? Yeah. Oh, it sounds really good to me, Doug. And again, I appreciate your time tonight, man, and appreciate everything you do for the Albertan community through C and D, and the teaching that you do to other people and to the community down there in Malag and with Corey down in Roslyn there. Um, and I do. Like I said, I do really want to have you back because there's another couple things I want to pick your brain about 100%. Just over, uh, you know, like bow technology over over time and yeah. things that you really like and tuning stuff. And, I mean, we could kind of geek out about okay. it. And, you know, I'd just really like to come down and uh, shoot with you guys sometime and stuff like that. And yeah. just hang out and, you know, do the old uh, actually have a coffee and kind of sit around and bullshit and stuff too sounds like well, a good time so, we should um we should arrange something with Corey at rosen he's a lot quicker to get there than come to malay because i'm two hours he's only an hour yeah i gotta go to Corey's anyway so, and bug him so yeah you can do that well, we should for sure yeah i would love to yes. and uh again yeah thank you doug i appreciate it tons and yeah i can't thank wait to you. talk to you again soon absolutely okay we'll talk soon okay. merry christmas yeah okay, okay. you too merry christmas